This is not going to be a pleasant experience. You are going to see and hear things that are not going to be very nice. Experts divide serial killing into two general types: organized and disorganized. An organized killer brings everything he needs to complete the murder. A disorganized killer improvises. Begin. Listener discretion is advised. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least, Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC the truest story never told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. For today's episode, we're going back to August 1985. On August 12, 1985, Japan Airlines Flight 123 took off from Handa Airport in Tokyo, Japan at 6.12 p.m. It was heading to Atami Airport in Osaka, Japan. The flight should have taken 54 minutes. There were 509 passengers and 15 crew members aboard. About 12 minutes after takeoff, the plane experienced mechanical problems. Tragically, about 33 minutes later, it crashed into Mount Takamahara. For several reasons, rescue teams didn't reach the crash site until 14 hours after the crash. Unfortunately, over 100 people most likely survived the initial crash, but they died in the night from their injuries, shock, and exposure. Ultimately, only 4 people of the 524 aboard survived, and they were all badly injured. Japan Air Flight's 123 is the deadliest single airplane crash in history. On August 14, 1985, pop star Michael Jackson purchased ATV Music, a music publishing company. Jackson learned about the financial value of music rights from former Beatle, Paul McCartney. Jackson and McCartney were friends and they had recorded several songs together. The ATV Music catalog includes songs by the Rolling Stones, Bruce Springsteen, and Elvis Presley. But some of the most valuable songs were 251 songs by the Beatles. This included some of their biggest hits like All You Need Is Love, Yesterday, Help, and Hey Jude. McCartney lost the rights to the songs in 1969 because their publisher sold them to ATV. 
Jackson paid $47 million for the ATV catalog. McCartney was upset that Jackson purchased the catalog. It had been his dream to get the rights to songs back, but it never worked out. As a result, McCartney and Jackson had a falling out and never rekindled their friendship. Ten years after purchasing the rights, Jackson sold half the interest in the catalog to Sony Music for $150 million. On August 22, 1985, the number one song was The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News. It appeared on the soundtrack to the blockbuster movie Back to the Future. The song won two American Music Awards. It was also nominated for an Academy Award and a Grammy, but the band did not take home either award. The number one movie was Back to the Future, which would go on to be the biggest movie of the year. At the time, it was enjoying its seventh week at the top of the box office. On the morning of August 22, 1985, 35-year-old Dr. Helena Greenwood was at her home in Del Mar, California. Del Mar is a town in San Diego County. Helena was born in Hampshire, England. Her mother, Marguerite, was a geologist, and her father, Sidney, was a notable artist. He eventually became the head of the Southampton College of Arts, and he attained the title of Fellow Royal Society of Art. Helena was their only child. She was a bright and well-behaved girl. In high school, she met Roger Franklin, and they started dating. They eventually got married. Roger became a landscape architect. Helena became interested in the biotech field. When she was 26, she got her PhD in chemical pathology from the University of London. In 1977, the couple immigrated to the United States where there were many opportunities for Helena. But first, they spent a year exploring the country. Then they settled in the upper class town of Atherton, California in Silicon Valley. Helena got a job with the biotech company, Siva Company, in nearby Palo Alto. Helena was unique within the company because she understood both the science aspects of the company and the marketing side. Many people only understood one of them. So it only made sense to the company to make her the head of international marketing. By 1984, Helena and Richard moved over 460 miles south to Del Mar, California. Helena got a new job as vice president of marketing with a biomedical research lab, GenProbe. The company was working on ways to diagnose diseases through DNA. On the morning of August 22, 1985, 35-year-old Helena did not come to work. Her co-workers thought that this was odd because she was prompt and reliable. Also, she had an important meeting that morning and definitely would have been on time for that. So one of her co-workers called her husband, Roger, at work. He went home and found something unusual. The front gate was locked from the inside. He looked over the fence and in the front yard of their home, he saw his wife's dead body. Roger then did something unusual. He called his wife's place of employment, GenProbe, instead of the police. He called the police second. Helena had been strangled to death. There were no signs of sexual assault. The police thought that the crime scene was odd because it looked like it had been staged. The items in her purse were strewn about, but none of her cards, keys, or money were stolen. One thing that the police noted was that Helena put up one hell of a fight before she was killed. Two of her fingernails were torn off and found at the crime scene. The police believed that the killer hid in some bushes and attacked her as she left the house. 
The first suspect the police had was Helena's husband, Roger Franklin. After all, it was strange that he called her work instead of the police. He was also the last person to see her alive. However, by all accounts, Roger and Helena had a happy relationship. Also, Roger had an airtight alibi. Helena had been on the phone shortly before 9 o'clock. She lived just a few minutes drive from her office and usually arrived on time. A few minutes before 9 a.m., Helena's neighbor heard some screaming. So the police concluded she was killed just before 9 a.m. At 9 a.m., Roger was at work, which was a 40-minute drive from his own home. As for why he called Gen Probe instead of the police first, he said he was just in shock. So Roger was eliminated as a suspect. It turned out that the police had another strong suspect. In the spring of 1984, Helena and Roger were living in Atherton. On April 7, 1984, Helena was home alone. Roger was in Washington, D.C. on business. While she was sleeping, a man broke into their home. At gunpoint, he raped her and stole some money. Helena talked to the man and promised not to call the police. The man left without doing any further harm to her. Helena immediately called the police after he left. She also called a friend who took her to the hospital. At the hospital, she described her attacker to the police. Understandably, Helena refused to stay another night in her home. Her friend drove her back home so she could pick up some clothing. While she was gathering up some belongings, the friend wandered around outside and eventually made his way to the back porch. The back porch was attached to the kitchen. The police determined that the rapist had entered through the kitchen window. The friend noticed something odd on the ground a few feet from the kitchen window. It was a kettle. He asked Helena about it, and she said that the kettle was supposed to be on the windowsill. They concluded that before the rapist climbed through the window, he removed the kettle and dropped it outside. They called the police, and they collected the kettle. They managed to find three fingerprints on it. But no match the fingerprints were found. So the case went cold. One year later, a man in Belmont, California, named David Paul Frediani, was arrested after exposing himself to a 12-year-old girl. Frediani was a 30-year-old financial analyst with no criminal record. His fingerprints were taken. The police thought that Frediani matched the description of the man Helena said attacked her. Also, Belmont is about six miles from Atherton. So they compared his fingerprints to those found on the kettle. They were a match. The police interviewed Frediani and he denied even being in the area where Helena was raped. So he was asked how did his fingerprints end up at the crime scene. He said something to the effect of, I was drunk when I did those things. He then asked for a lawyer and stopped talking to the police. He was charged with sexually assaulting Helena. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. 
Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. There was a preliminary hearing and Helena testified. She said she couldn't identify Frediani as her attacker. But the police still had the fingerprints placing him at the crime scene, so he was ordered to go to trial. Frediani was on bail while he awaited trial. Helena was killed three weeks before the trial was to take place. The police didn't think that this was a coincidence. They surmised that Frediani killed her, so she wouldn't testify against him at his trial. The police questioned Frediani about Helena's murder. He claimed he had nothing to do with it. He said he wasn't even in that part of California when she was killed. He claimed he was hundreds of miles away in the San Francisco area. But the police still believed he had something to do with her murder. The problem was that there was no way to prove it. The killer didn't leave any fingerprints behind. They did find some blood under Helena's fingernails. If David Frediani did kill Helena to somehow stop the trial for sexual assault, he was mistaken. The charges against him proceeded. Since Helena couldn't testify, her testimony for the preliminary hearing was entered into evidence. But that wasn't the strongest evidence against Frediani. His fingerprints of the crime scene were much stronger evidence. Also, forensic experts determined that the fluid found on Helena's pillow was semen. They determined that the semen came from a man with type O blood who was a secretor. This was a match to Frediani. Just before his trial started, Frediani changed his plea to no contest. He was sentenced to six years of prison. After he went to prison, Helena's murder case was placed in a storage and her case went cold. David Frediani ended up serving three years in prison. After he was released, he returned to his job as a financial analyst. Helena's widower, Roger, eventually remarried and moved back to the Bay Area. Tragically, he was diagnosed with cancer and died in July 1999. The same year, the police decided to reopen Helena's case. A lot had changed in the 15 years since Helena was murdered. When the police reopened the case in 1999, something caught their attention. One of their biggest problems was that they couldn't place David Frediani near the crime scene. He said he was 500 miles away in San Francisco at the time of the murder. But the cold case investigators found a report that he was in a minor traffic accident a short distance from Helena's home just a week before the murder. This encouraged investigators, so they looked at the evidence. 
They had saved Helena's clothes and the tips of her fingernails. They found two spots of blood on her clothes and some blood under her fingernails. The problem was that they were all very small samples. So DNA experts use a process called polymerase chain reaction or PCR. PCR amplifies small DNA samples to make them big enough for DNA comparison. The investigators were lucky because if they had tried DNA testing before PCR was invented, they would not have been able to build a profile and the DNA would have been used up. If they had used all the blood, Helena's murder might have gone unresolved. But because of PCR, they were able to create a DNA profile. To no one's surprise, the DNA belonged to David Frediani. The odds that the blood belonged to someone else is 1 in 23 billion. In December 1999, 45-year-old David Frediani was arrested for first-degree murder. He went to trial in January 2001. The district attorney said that Frediani killed Helena so that she couldn't testify against him at the sexual assault trial. So he traveled to the Del Mar area and stalked Helena and Roger. He learned their routine and knew that Roger left for work about an hour before Helena left for work. So on the morning of the murder, he watched Roger leave, and then he hid in the bushes. When Helena left the house to go to work, he jumped her and strangled her to death. He then staged the scene to make it look like it was a robbery gone wrong. The trial lasted just under two weeks. Then the jury deliberated for a day. They found David Frediani guilty of murder. 1985 was a terrible year for Helena's father, Sidney Greenwood. In January 1985, months before his only daughter was murdered, his wife and Helena's mother died from leukemia. In the early 2000s, Sidney developed prostate cancer. He said he wanted to live long enough to see justice for his daughter. He died the day after the verdict was reached at the age of 88. In March 2001, David Frediani was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Many people believe that Helena Greenwood helped solve her own murder in two ways. The first is that she was at the forefront of DNA research. She may have known that DNA would eventually be used to identify individuals. So aside from trying to fight off her attacker to save her own life, she may have tried to get his DNA so it could be tested later. Also, the district attorney who prosecuted the case told Forensic Files that the work she and her company did with DNA helped put her killer away. At the time of this recording, 7-year-old David Frediani was serving a sentence at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility in Cochrane, California. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.